Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Good afternoon and happy Labor Day, everybody. Welcome to A Public Affair. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'll be your host for this hour. On August 24th, President Biden announced a significant new federal effort to alleviate the debt burden of people who have gone to college. This plan cancels up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt for individuals making less than $125,000 per year and for couples with family income under $250,000. For people who have received need-based Pell Grants in college, up to $20,000 in loans may be canceled. This plan may help more than 700,000 Wisconsinites who have an average of about $30,000 in federal student loan debt. On today's show, we're going to find out more about how the new Biden administration plan may affect people with student loan debt and society as a whole. And we'll explore the broader issue of skyrocketing college costs and the economic and social impacts of these costs. Here to tell us more about the new plan and its impacts is Dr. Nick Hillman. Nick is a professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His research examines how finance, policy, and geography shape educational opportunities in the United States. Welcome and thanks so much for joining us, Nick. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. And we're also really fortunate to be joined today by two recent graduates of the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh who are impacted by the new Biden plan. Alyssa Reinke is a 2021 graduate of UW Oshkosh, where she was an environmental studies and geography major. Thank you for being with us, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. And Corey Zeman is a 2022 graduate of UW Oshkosh, where he majored in environmental studies. Thanks for joining us, Corey. I'm happy to be here. And welcome, listeners. We'd really love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question about the new Biden administration student loan debt forgiveness plan or would like to share how student loan debt has impacted your life, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at WRT Talk or on Facebook. Uh, Just reach out to A Public Affair. So please join our conversation today as we explore how student loan debt and the Biden administration's plan to alleviate student loan debt not only impacts uh, college graduates and recent college graduates, um, but also all of us as we think about the ways that college and work shape our society together. So we're going to start off today with you, Nick, to help us out with the the big picture. Um, I'd love to have you start by giving us uh, an overview of the new Biden administration debt relief plan, what it is, and how it works. Thank you. Um, the overview that you gave earlier just hit it, hit it right on the head. The big elements of this debt forgiveness plan are the dollar figures, the ten to $20,000 in cancellation that are being proposed and hopefully will be um, actually done and accomplished uh, here soon. There are two other parts to this, though. One is that um, the student loan repayment system has basically been frozen. It's been on pause for over two years now. And so um, borrowers who used to be in repayment have not had to make payments for two years or borrowers who are just starting to make a repayment, they may have just finished, graduated, or finished college in the last couple of years, have never had to make a payment yet. And so they're gonna have to start making payments. So that's gonna all happen in January. So the system is basically getting turned back on in January, 2023. The other part to this is that the Biden administration has also proposed some new Um, design features of their income-driven repayment plans. And currently, these income-driven repayment plans, they base your annual, I'm sorry, your monthly student loan payment on your earnings. And um, there is also some forgiveness embedded within that. And these new plans are going to be a little bit more generous. So in addition to the cancellation, there's also these other things happening with the student loan system that can affect people. Thanks, Nick. And what um, is the Biden administration's rationale for the plan? How are they uh, representing it to the public and, and its public good? 
A few different um, sort of the bumper sticker taglines I've heard uh, with this one, and there are a few different ways to think about it because student debt affects over 40 million individuals in the United States, 1.6 or $1.7 trillion outstanding in student loan debt, which is the second largest line of credit next to home mortgages. So this is just a massive um, enterprise, I suppose. I mean, a lot of people are affected by student loan debt and in different ways. And so to sort of simplify what all this means, it's hard to boil that down into a bumper sticker. And so some of the ways that I've been hearing the Biden administration or folks talk about this are, first of all, on sort of correcting the wrongs that are in the system. The student loan system has been broken. As Senator Elizabeth Warren would say, a failed experiment uh, for, you know, almost 60 years now. And so some of the argument is that we're fixing some wrong, some broken systems here. Another argument though, has a lot of truth to it as well. This is a method for um, giving debt relief and helping um, close racial wealth gaps that are vast in the United States. There are huge gaps between black and white individuals' incomes and their wealth and student loan debt disproportionately falls on people of color and people from lower income families. And so there's another angle on this that the Biden administration has been pushing as a more of a social justice angle, not just a good government angle on how to sort of um, improve the systems that are operating. We're going to turn to our recent college graduates now for your perspective. And I'll start just to your reaction to that rationale that uh, Nick Hillman just laid out for us, and then we'll move into your stories a little bit. But Alyssa, does that rationale resonate with you? Do you agree that this student debt should be uh, relieved or in some cases forgiven, depending on the amount of debt you have? Uh, yeah, I think it can be really beneficial. Uh, I think it can be complicated though too. I uh, have an older sister by a year. And when you compare our amounts of debt, I graduated um, last year, right, with $30,000 in debt, while also being in school, I was working 40 plus hours a week. Uh, and my sister graduated with a uh, doctorate in chiropractic with $220,000 in debt. So I think for people like me, even $10,000 is going to be a significant bump into that, which is going to help me make bigger life goals and changes like buying a house, which is on our list. But I don't feel comfortable doing that yet until we focus more on the debt. Uh, but I think what really resonates with me is uh, changing the system so it's easier for repayment because I'm more than happy to pay for my college and my education. Um, it is a privilege, not a requirement, and I'm privileged to have been able to go. Uh, but, you know, interest rates did significantly jump each year I went into college where it was below 3% my first year. And my final year, it was about 6%, which doesn't sound significant. But when you put that on top of $30,000, it adds up. Absolutely. Um, and can you give us a little more while we're with you, Alyssa, on uh, basically how you paid for college as you went and how that debt accumulated? Yeah. So I did five years of college. I did two years at the University of Wisconsin Fond du Lac, which is a two-year institution. Um, I got my associates there and then I went to UW Oshkosh for three years to finish out and get my bachelor's. While uh, in school, I was working lots of different jobs. I was doing assistant home care. I was doing uh, limited term employment with DNR things in the summer, working at a local grocery store and stuff like that. Um, at the same time, commuting, I kind of chose to do everything in my power to make college as affordable for me. Uh, as I could, which is why I did choose one of the cheapest two-year institutions in the state that was close to me, as well as the cheapest four-year institution, and then keeping those costs down even more by commuting and stuff. Um, but still, most of my uh, money ended up going into, you know, rent, vehicle, maintenance, tuition, uh, and stuff like that. So still graduating with some debt. Yep. So still, even though you were working at times more than 40 hours a week, right, you still accumulate, had to take out loans to, to pay for college. Yes, it was not unusual for me to be taking, you know, 18 plus credits, which is typically what they suggest, uh, while working 60 plus hours a week between all of my jobs. We're going to turn to you, Corey, uh, and hear a little bit about first year reaction to the plan as uh, Nick Hillman laid it out for us and uh, more of your story of how you paid for college and the role that loans played. Sure. Uh, 
just echoing Alyssa, I also think it's a great, you know, proposal and uh, almost everyone that I know is uh, affected by this. Everyone I've went to school with uh, seemingly has debt and uh, it's going to, I feel like it's really going to lift a lot of people uh, out of that trap. And uh, in addition, what uh, Nick was talking about, uh, the restructuring of the repayment based on income is a very large part of this that I think is kind of flown under the radar for a lot of people. And uh, as for my own story, uh, I was fortunate enough to have parents that uh, invested since I was born and that we had saved enough for three years of school. And I uh, attended UWO because it was an affordable option. And I still had to take out uh, loans for the final year of my schooling. And so this amount of debt falls under the $10,000 limit. So this new plan has actually actually eliminated uh, all of my student debt. And uh, it's a really, it's a really nice uh, <laughs> head start on saving for a car or a, a, cow, or a house or something like that. So it's a really a big weight lifted. Yeah. Thank you for uh, sharing your stories, both of you. And um, let's uh, broaden that uh, again, uh, turn it back to Nick and um, hearing those stories and others that I'm sure you're aware of and that you've discovered in your research. What's your take on how well this plan will alleviate the negative impacts of student loan debt and the cost of college more broadly at this point? Um, those stories that um, Alyssa and Corey shared, and thank you for sharing them there, are so important. And they are reflected in a lot of the conversations, a lot of rationale of the Biden administration. But on the research side, um, we oftentimes do research on student loan debt, and we have to rely, interestingly, on credit bureau data. And so data that comes from credit reporting companies. Um, and the federal government occasionally puts out some information on um, the number and the sort of the, the duration of time of repaying loans, but all these big numbers, this big data that we're crunching and analyzing, we're trying to understand how this affects individual behaviors in life circumstances, is just hard to do quantitatively So in, from those kind of data sets. So it is very helpful to kind of humanize um, the discussion that can become very dehumanizing in, in very many cases. Um, Corey mentioned a debt trap. And or you said it's a trap, you felt like. And that concept is one that is getting more attention in the research world on student loans uh, because of the inevitability of borrowing. And I think that these stories helped kind of paint that picture. We're told on one hand, go to college, it pays off. And if you don't go to college, it's actually worse for you. So it's worth going into debt for. And so you go to college, uh, but the way to stay in and get that degree, and Corey, uh, Corey's example nails it, uh, that that finishing that degree, sometimes you need a loan to get through the finish line. And so um, the VAT, we call it the value proposition of higher education is becoming less clear uh, because of the excessive debt that we have to carry and repay. So that's one piece of this. Two quick ones also that stand out to me to kind of connect these stories with some of the bigger picture stuff that we're hearing in the research world. Um, one is that um, people are going into debt. Oftentimes, this is the first time that they've engaged in credit markets, the first time that they've had to go into debt on anything. And typically you would think, well, if you're going to go into debt, maybe your first experience is like an auto loan or something like that. Something a little bit more conventional where you actually have like a physical thing that is of value that you've borrowed money to pay for that you knew the price upfront with. Uh, that's not what your college education is. You don't know what you're going to be charged. You don't know how long it's going to take you to get a degree. In fact, you don't really know what the payoff of that degree is until you've finished and maybe even long after. And so very many years after you finish your education, you get your earning potential to kind of boost up. And so we're borrowing to do something really odd. We're borrowing to invest in ourselves and there's no collateral in that process. That's also why student loan debt is typically not allowable to be uh, uh, discharged in bankruptcy. And so it's just a very, very risky, awkward, financial tool to be using to pay for college. And so that's the system that we had in the 1960s. And I think uh, the conversations are saying, maybe we should rethink this. Maybe this isn't the kind of system we should be using. But those are a couple of things that really stood out to me. There are more we can come back to in this conversation. But I think that uh, these are really, really important to humanize the experience. 
You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Dr. Nick Hillman from UW-Madison, Department of Education, and Corey Zeman and Alyssa Reinke, recent graduates of the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. And we're talking about student loan debt and the Biden administration's new student loan debt relief program. And more broadly as well, what the implications of the cost of college are and how student loans affect all of us uh, broadly. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or reach out to a public affair on Facebook. But we'd love to hear your stories as well. Um, I'm going to turn it back to you, Nick, for a minute and uh, have you uh, begin to broaden that um, conversation a little bit and thinking about if we were to make the case for somebody about why this is good, not just for the people who have received student loans, but for all of us, what are the social economic implications of student loan debt relief? There are a few different ones that come to mind. Um, one is that um, Regardless of the debt, let's just think about the educational experience um, and the idea that going to college is not just good for the individual. You learn something, you can transform yourself, and you know uh, that's all, all wonderful. And having neighbors who are better nurses, better teachers, whatever their profession is that they've you know now done because of their education benefits broader communities. So regardless of the student loan debt, the value of investing in education is vast. And that's not just a a personal opinion, that's um, uh, well-documented in the academic literature. There's been really interesting studies to try to figure out, is it that college actually helps people become more productive or more, you know, um, engaged? uh, Or is it that they were gonna do that anyway and college just basically like confirms that? Uh, And it's very very true that um, the former is what's happening, is college is doing something different for people's lives and that's a good thing. Um, now, whether it's doing enough, whether that's, you know, weakening over time, those are other questions. Um, so regardless of the student loan debt, investing in, in education benefits individuals and uh, communities. And if you don't, if that doesn't inspire you, you could also think about the tax revenue that is going to now be produced by these new uh, graduates who are going to be paying more taxes now because they're earning more money and in the long run will be uh, helping out more than what, you know, anybody's used from the system. So that's one angle on it that I've heard. Um, But in terms of the actual money amount, student loan debt does free up, uh, I'm sorry, canceling a portion of student loan debt can free up um, your consumption in a number of different ways. I think Alyssa might have mentioned home ownership. Certainly there are a number of other types of investments to be making that could benefit other people other than the individual. Um, I want to share the one thing that was really surprising in the research that this comes kind of full circle right now with. Um, Corey mentioned needing debt to pay for one year of college. And that amount of money is less than $10,000, it sounded like. This cancellation is going to basically cover that amount. Well, Corey's example was at the end of his college experience. And that's right. Um, that's, that's a r- good example. What also happens is that individuals take out loans in the very first semester and they never come back for the next semester or the next year and they have debt but no degree and so you have the same situation where somebody has less than ten thousand dollars in student loan debt because they tried it out it wasn't for them and now they've got the debt but nothing to sort of show for it i guess uh, on in the labor market and it, in fact seven and a half million borrowers in the u.s are in student loan default so you can default on your student loans most of those borrowers are the, the borrowers I just described, debt and no degree, enrolled for a little while, didn't get a credential, but have that debt. Most of those individuals have less than $10,000. And so by clearing off their debts, there's going to be, I think, a really important social benefit to this of not just the individual not having to, you know, have credit, um, uh, what do you call them, uh, creditors coming after their wages garnished, um, but also frees them from that debt so they can have other consumption in other ways. So it's on average going to help people, but specifically it's really going to help borrowers who have that debt, but no degree. Sorry for the long answer, but there's so many elements to this. 
Not at all. That was uh, really helpful in helping us understand the, the broad economic implications of this. I'd like to build on that now with Alyssa and Corey and think a little bit, since you're, you're recent college grads, you still have uh, the experience of college very much in mind. And I'm wondering if you could tell us more about the effects of accumulating debt on you psychologically during the college experience, socially, what you were able to get involved in or not get involved in because of the cost of college and your awareness of, of debt as well. Um, what, what impacts does the cost of college and accumulating debt have on the college experience itself? Um, Alyssa, could you start us off with that? Sure. Uh, I know me and you have actually talked about this in quite detail. Yeah. Uh, I think so kind of, as I mentioned before, I tried really hard to make college as affordable for myself as I could. Uh, unlike Corey and unlike many uh, people, my parents could not and did not assist me with college. Uh, the only thing I really got from them was for my first year or two, I did live with them, but I paid for all my own bills and stuff. Uh, and I was on their health insurance. Part of the system that I think is broken too that impacted me a lot and how I accumulated my debt is that getting no assistance from them, at least the last three years, right? Living on my own, paying all my own bills, stuff like that. Their income is still what was considered for what I was eligible for grants and scholarships and stuff like that. So I was never eligible for any kind of grant. Um, I would apply to tons of scholarships, but the only kind of diversity things I had going for me was first gen uh, woman. And that was about it. So there's kind of this gap of people who are trying really, really hard, getting great grades. Like I graduated with almost a 4.0 for both of my degrees, um, but still just struggled financially throughout college. So like I mentioned before, uh, college was really stressful. I was trying really hard. I was paying for it. I was going to make the most out of my education by taking as many classes as I could, uh, going out and doing clubs and starting clubs and doing outreach events and stuff like that. But also I'm working 40 plus hours a week to try and cover my expenses and make it a reasonable thing to be investing in uh, because I can't just go to school and focus on my education. I also have bills to pay. So college was really stressful. I'm not going to lie. I definitely had some days that I would cry uh, because money is probably the biggest stressors in everybody's life. And throwing that on top of trying to get an education and an education during COVID uh, was pretty difficult. Thank you for sharing your story. Corey, would you like to reflect on that for us a little bit? Sure. Uh, I was going to reflect on the social aspect that you mentioned. And, uh, you know, as I said before, my parents did help me, but I was uh, paying my own way for, you know, my rent and food and things like that. And so I was also working and, uh, this stretches back as far as high school. I was also saving to go to college, you know, and instead of, you know, being with friends or doing things like that on the weekend, you know, I was at my job and uh, just to kind of, this is kind of an anecdote, but for uh, one semester, I was fortunate enough to uh, do the national student exchange, which is where you uh, study at another university in the United States while paying home tuition. And since I was only there for a few months, I, uh, did not get a job while I was out of state uh, August through November. And uh, I feel like I have retained almost everything from when I was studying uh, without working. I was just able to focus on my studies and kind of have no other distractions other than school. Uh, I, still, I feel like some of the friendships that I made there are stronger than some of the ones that I've made here for when I was, you know, in Oshkosh for much longer than I was at the other school. And so I just really think, you know, maybe that's uh, just an anecdote, but I really think that uh, not working really helps you uh, retain more information. I think that's a very powerful anecdote, Corey, and I appreciate you sharing that because that's really what is at the heart of this discussion, right, is how does the cost of college and, and debt um, impact what students are getting out of the experience. And, and Nick was using the term value, right? And we think about value economically, but there are lots of ways to think about that term value. And your, your testimony is really to the value of the experience of being able to focus on your studies. And both of your stories also speaks to one of the critiques you hear 
out there right now is, well, I, you know, I, I worked my way through college. Why can't you just work your way through college and, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and manage this, right? Um, so what is your, your take on that response, first of all, Alyssa and Corey, and then we'll move into the broader critiques of the new debt relief plan here in a minute. Alyssa, go ahead. I, uh, as you, I'm smiling so hard because you do hear this every time you talk to somebody. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of statistics and facts that can probably go into this answer. And I don't have all of the exact numbers and hopefully Nicholas can bring those in. Uh, but just talking to people who say that, such as like my boyfriend's stepdad, he's like, oh, I went to the same school. I worked two months of the summer and I paid my tuition. The cost of tuition has gone up significantly in the short amount of time since he went to college, the cost of living, the cost of groceries, uh, rent, everything has just gone up so significantly. While the, you know, federal minimum wage hasn't gone up that much either. And most of the jobs, especially in my area, since I'm not in a big city either, don't have that high of uh, hourly wages. So unless you're going to be getting a job in a different city and commuting, and hopefully can get a decent paying job, which can be kind of difficult at this point, especially kind of in the environmental field. Um, I'm kind of rambling, but for a second, I'm going to step off this for a sec and say a lot of the environmental jobs, there's tons, right? Sometimes they're really focused on those major cities. And then there's also these great positions that you're striving for when you're in college, but people don't like to retire. And I know that they love working but it's really difficult to find a position when there's so many people in that retirement age holding these positions and not letting go. So that's another kind of factor that's making it difficult to make money to pay off student loans. Um, but yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I went off on a tangent. Well, like you said, there are lots of factors affecting your experience right now. But to go back to that basic question about you, you hit the nail on the head, right? Uh, it's just not possible any, anymore to work your way through college, even at, at UW Oshkosh, which is one of the cheapest public institutions uh, in the state, in one of the cheapest uh, states in the nation for public higher education, right? Um, so uh, it's, it's a critique that, that you know, uh, maybe reflects some uh, lack of awareness about uh, changes in tuition, as you mentioned, Alyssa, but also, as you mentioned, the cost of living. I have in front of me uh, the changes between 1980 and 2022 at UW-Eau Claire in tuition went from $910 in 1980 to uh, almost $9,000 in 2022 for in-state. And of course, uh, the minimum wage was $3 in 1980 and uh, $7.25 in 2022. We could go on from there, right? Um, but uh, working just doesn't cover what it used to, right, for, for the cost of college. Uh, I'm going to reintroduce you folks here briefly. We're on WORT's A Public Affair. Uh, we would love to have you join our conversation today about the cost of college and the recent uh, Biden administration debt relief program. You can call us at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or tweet us at WRT Talk or reach out to a public affair on Facebook. Please let us know if you have questions for us. I'm going to turn it back to you, um, Nick and have you uh, fill us in more on some of the other critiques of this new student loan debt relief program. And uh, what are people responding to on all ends of the political spectrum? And do you think these critiques are well-founded? The critiques are um, kind of slowly trickling in. So I think we're yet to really see which ones stick. Um, but some of the main ones I've heard so far, first are, I paid off my loan the right way five or 10 years ago, where's my uh, refund? So that's one I've heard that it's interesting. I don't hear that with other uh, public policy conversations. Not that I track them, but it does seem like that would be a common thing that we might hear say with mortgage interest rate deductions or with tax, any sort of other tax uh, deductions. But interestingly, that's been one that's really gotten a lot of attention is student loan debt. Um, that's one. Another critique is I'm just beyond that threshold. Why is $125,000 the right threshold? What about somebody who earns $126,000? They might be concerned that they somehow uh, should have uh, deserved the cancellation. So there's 
that element. So you have these income thresholds that are, I think, political or politicized. Um, and uh, the historic kind of, hey, I did my, I did it the right way. I did it my way, uh, you know, before. Uh, where's my refund? Another critique, though, is about moving forward. So, um, and I think this one is probably the strongest critique and the one that really the Biden administration has no good answer to uh, because um, this critique is basically, it's not going to prevent somebody from borrowing this fall. College students are back in school now. They're going to be taking out loans now. And uh, they're in the future going to have to repay those loans. And even with more generous repayment plan options, this whole cancellation idea is basically a one-time deal. And so somebody in the future uh, might not necessarily um, expect this to happen. Maybe they are hoping it's going to happen again in the future, but it creates a lot of uncertainty and a lot of politics around that for what's what's in store moving ahead. And the reason I say that the Biden administration doesn't have an answer to this is because the fundamental sort of um, inner workings of our student lending system are all still intact. Uh, we still have uh, the same kind of processes, the same kind of uh, payment systems that we have always had. And then you layer on top of that what Alyssa just described is absolutely accurate. Whatever, uh, all those different elements of why it's so expensive to go to college, those are not changing either, frankly. And so um, college tuition fees, room and board, all that stuff, the majority of the loan debt that we have out there, some estimate are going toward not tuition, but these non-tuition expenses, um, rent, housing, uh, anything to stay enrolled in school so you can get that degree. Uh, those things are not really changing. And so um, those are a few of the critiques I've heard. And to follow up with you, Nick, does it seem like there's political will to build on this um, a more, you know, universal debt relief plan? Um, a lot of activists have been calling for that, for example. Uh, how do you see the the political future of this issue playing out? On the left, uh, among the Democrat uh, Democratic Party, there's a lot of uh, disagreement on the right amount of student loans to cancel in the first place. And so uh, there are some who said we should have canceled it all and not have made these thresholds, made these limits. Um, there's some that said we should have done $50,000. Uh, the compromise was $10,000. And what was kind of a, a surprise to a lot of folks who've been following this is that uh, the $20,000 cancellation for somebody who had, uh, had a Pell Grant while they were enrolled in college, that means they were lower income when they were enrolled. Uh, that was, I think, a a compromise to kind of win back some of the folks further on the left than the Biden administration. Uh, and so I think that there's within the Democratic Party a lot of kind of disagreement on the right amount of cancellation. Um, I do believe there will be continued effort to have more canceled in the future. But the challenge with this, and this gets way in the weeds, and actually I, I think a little bit beyond my um, comfort zone, but I have to at least say it, um, the authority that the Secretary of Education is using to cancel student loan debt comes from something that was passed in Congress after the September 11th attacks in, in 2001 and 2003 got reauthorized. It's called the HEROES Act, and it allows the Secretary of Education to modify or waive, that's the language, modify or waive, um, federal, student aid system, uh, federal student aid programs um, in cases of national emergencies. And so this is sort of um, the thing that we're going to see moving forward is whether this um, HEROES Act authorization is um, constitutional. So the a lot of conservatives on the right are saying that was not what this HEROES Act was designed to do. In fact, there are some conservatives who were trying to prevent cancellation in the very first place. And so I do think we're going to see some uh, legal scrutiny uh, and maybe even some lawsuits coming down the pike on people who feel like they've been harmed if they have standing, if they can prove that they've been harmed by this decision, they will come out of the woodworks. Thank you. Yeah. In fact, last week, the Washington Post reported that some Republicans and right wing law firms are planning to file lawsuits against the plan to invalidate it. Um, so it sounds like you you think that that is possibly you agree that that's possibly in the works. Yes. And, and, and Douglas, if I could just add one more element, sure. it's just something that listeners might want to just kind of keep on their radar. Um, there is a third piece of this puzzle. Uh, we think about the students and we think about the colleges. There's this. Um, whole entire enterprise called student loan servicing and these loan servicers are the organizations they're oftentimes for-profit sometimes non-profit organizations that are the ones that basically are the middlemen between the student loan borrower and the federal government and these servicers have a responsibility through the contract to make sure that they're helping borrowers navigate the repayment system so the servicers could be at play here maybe even bringing suit because this cancellation might cut into their pocketbooks.
That's an important point, and it actually relates to a question we had come in from a listener named Aunt Diane on Facebook. She asks, uh, does the federal bill do anything about predatory lenders or this new Biden administration plan? Um, uh, I'm guessing this has to do with the distinction between private lenders and, and the federal lenders. Can you shed some light on that for us, Nick, please? This does not do anything about predatory private lenders, to my knowledge. Uh, this uh, cancellation is only for what are called direct loans that are from the federal government. The U.S. Treasuries, uh, they are the ones who authorize the Department of Education to put out these loans. So all these are federal loans. Um, there are private loans that, you, that borrowers might get from banks or from uh, um, credit bureaus or whatnot. And those are not part of the conversation and not uh, eligible for this forgiveness. Thank you. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT Madison, 89.9 FM. There's still time to let us know if you have a question or comment about the Biden administration's new student loan debt forgiveness plan or the cost of college. Uh, You can call us at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter at WRT Talk. So in the time we have left here today, I'd love to um, continue broadening this discussion uh, to talk about the cost of college and its uh, personal and public impacts um, and particularly uh, brainstorm some ideas about other ways that policy might affect that issue. Um, I'd love to turn it back to you, Corey and Alyssa, um, to talk about um, what you hear other students or recent graduates uh, saying about the cost of college and how it impacts them post-graduation. Uh, and then we'll, we'll go from there and, and talk a little bit more about that uh, issue of the cost of college, which keeps coming up. Uh, Alyssa, Sure. Um, I think what is interesting, and probably a lot of people experience this, is everybody's story about the cost of college is different. Uh, You have people who, my partner, his parents paid for all of his college. He didn't have to work. He didn't have to do anything. We have people who worked or parents paid for some of it. We have people who um, worked and had to pay for all of it, right? Uh, So, uh, in general, you know, just the cost of college is impeding whether that's the individual going to the school or the parent who's paying for it. Uh, but the, the cost just does seem to be a bit high. <laughs> I, I feel uh, uncomfortable kind of saying that because I value my education and I would not have went and done it if I didn't think it was worth it. Uh, and I made the most out of my education while there. It just does put the stress on your life while you're in school and once you're out of school, because there's so many other things that I could be um, not necessarily investing in, but using my money for, right? I'm a big, you know, support local, support this. And if that was one less bill on my my task or one more manageable bill, right? It's what was it like going down from 10% of your income to like 5% of your income with this bill, uh, that makes a big impact on having more available funds to be able to, you know, invest in a house or invest in local businesses and supporting other things locally, right? So um, less stress and more money to be put into the economy locally. So that's my point. Uh, Towards socially beneficial things you're talking about, in addition to just sort of consumer spending. Yeah. Uh, Corey, would you like to add anything uh, about the general note about sense of cost of college and the conversations you have with your peers? Sure. Uh, Like I said before, this affects almost all of my peers, uh, whether they are, you know, a few years older than me or still in college. It seems like everyone is kind of dealing with this, even, you know, some as far as like 10 years out, they're still kind of dealing with this uh, student loan debt. And uh, the day it got announced, I mean, I mean, my phone was just blowing up, you know, like people sending videos, just like happy tears and, and just the kind of weight that was lifted is just, uh, it was, seemed really beneficial for kind of the mental state of uh, all my peers. So I don't know. Uh, yeah. No, I have any other questions. 
I'm glad to hear that that anecdote. No, that's what we we're looking for is get a sense of the the general response here. Um, I'd like to turn it to uh, the cost discussion to community college in particular and students' choice of colleges um, because uh, you do hear critique about why people choose to go to more expensive colleges versus cheaper colleges. There's also this discussion out there, political discussion about making community college um, free for everyone, right? So um, let's turn back to you, Nick, and have us talk a little bit more about the the proposal to the Biden administration proposal to make community college free, what the prospects are for that and what the implications of that might be. Great. There's been a large and I think a multiracial coalition around this idea of free community college in particular, even free college more broadly. Um, and what that basically would do would require states to continue their investment in public higher education, even grow it over time. And then if they were to do that, they would be eligible to get federal money to make college tuition free uh, for community colleges or in some cases, public four year universities. And so uh, that would go, I think, a long way in helping the sort of sticker shock that oftentimes happens when you have somebody who, before they ever go to college, uh, might be scared away. Uh, they might say, hey, I'm not going to take out a loan to go to college uh, or it's too expensive. So this helps with that. Um, and in some states, there's been some good evidence that it has not only uh, brought in more students into the community college system, uh, but it also has affected where students end up enrolling between their two-year and their four-year counterparts. And that's where things get really interesting really fast, and it varies by state to state. Um, and what I mean by being very interesting is that imagine the situation where you get a lot more students going into the community college system uh, because it's tuition free. Uh, that would have a lot of benefits because there are benefits to attending college, uh, community college in particular. However, if their goals is to then transfer to a four-year university, um, we have to make extra, extra certain that those transfer articulation agreements are really well aligned so that you don't have a lot of students sort of falling through the cracks where they got all their credits accumulated in the community college and they don't count when they transfer to the four-year system. And in Wisconsin, nationally, the uh, Wisconsin really ranks low in terms of successful transfer between the tech colleges and the University of Wisconsin system, and one of the lowest in terms of the completion rates of transfer students nationwide. And I wish this conversation would get a lot more attention in the state of Wisconsin because it's one of those fundamental structural issues that uh, we could uh, maybe in some cases worsen if we're not really paying enough attention to, you know, making sure that the, the machinery underneath is also working when we make or if we make college tuition free. Have recent efforts to address that issue um, made some progress, Nick? I know, for example, with the consolidation of the two-year schools with four-year campuses, do you see that uh, improving? I do see that improving. I think that there are folks around the state doing um, a lot of excellent work in that area to try to make sure that those transfer agreements work well, but there's just a lot more to be done. And that's not a Wisconsin thing. I mean, that's nationwide. This is just a structural issue that we have in higher education. Um, and the promises, or I should say the prospects of having this national tuition-free um, policy um, I wonder if it's going to lose some momentum because of all this debt cancellation talk. It almost was like now we're focused on something else. And, and uh, that, those broad coalitions that had made a lot of movement, uh, I just will we'll want to see how active they continue to be here uh, in the months ahead. Alyssa, I know you have experience with transferring from a two-year school to a four-year school. Can you tell us uh, your experience of how that went in terms of uh, moving your credits? Yeah, so... I believe when I went to UW Oshkosh, it was after the restructuring. So it was officially gaining uh, UW Fond du Lac as a sister school, I suppose you could call it. Um, so I'm a really go-getter and I work for what I want. Um, so one of the big things I struggled with was, so moving from UW Fond du Lac to UW Oshkosh, I didn't have to do a bunch of the campus requirements because I had that associate's degree. However, the way that my, some of my credits transferred from geography to geography in a connected system didn't transfer. 
Uh, so I was lucky enough to be able to work directly with my department head and they were able to go in and manually adjust those so that I was able to get credits towards my degree at UW Oshkosh and help fulfill some of those major requirements because I had basically taken the same exact class just on a different campus. And funny enough, the teacher who taught me on the Fond du Lac campus ended up becoming the um, department head for the Oshkosh campus. So it's obviously apples to apples at this point. Uh, but it's it's not easy to stand up for yourself and kind of educate yourself on these stuff in, in those situations. You have to add that time of being like looking down to the T on what isn't transferring, why isn't transferring. And then you have to go step by step, which is talk to your professor, move up to the head. You have to go to your registrar's office, make sure that that all gets approved just so you're getting these credits to fully cover and count towards your degree. So as a student, you have to sort of advocate, you're saying, for making sure that those credits get counted when you transfer schools. And obviously, as a student who's working 40 hours a week and taking 18 credits, that that adds like an additional burden, right? Um, and it's especially tricky um, for students working that much and especially tricky for first generation students as well who are navigating a, a system that they have um, not very much experience navigating. Um and uh, I'm getting a question coming in here about financial literacy. Um, did you feel prepared to navigate these financial challenges on your own, Alyssa and Corey? And were there sufficient educational resources available either from family or campus to help you through this planning process as you got to college? And this speaks to, to first-gen issues as well, particularly for first-gen students. This is going to be challenging, right? Um, Corey? Uh just like with many of my responses, uh, my family was, uh, uh, I'm not a first generation student, so they kind of helped me through the, the loan process and FAFSA and things like that. And even with all that help, I mean, it was still confusing. So I can't imagine someone who doesn't have someone around them with that kind of experience to help them, how, how confusing it could be. And uh, I'm just seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of peers are like, with this cancellation, like, do I have to do anything? You know, is there some kind of form to fill out? Is there, am I going to mess it up somehow and not get it? And so I think uh, it's a real issue that uh, kind of navigating this system can be hard for a lot of people. Alyssa, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, with the, the original question of, did I feel prepared uh, for the challenges? Uh, no, <laughs> no, I did not. Uh, I am, like I said before, a first gen student. The only thing family-wise that kind of helped me was that I have, uh, I'm the youngest of five, but my sister was the only one who was actively going to college as well. Uh, so we would actually sit down and fill out our FAFSAs together. And if you would even like look at our parents for help, they would like freak out because they didn't understand it. So it was us taking their taxes, our taxes, trying to figure it out. Then also with that little voice in the back of your head saying, don't mess this up or the government's coming for you. Uh, so that was really stressful. And I think the thing that really helped me was just putting myself out there and working with these uh, different groups and resources on campus. There are plenty of resources, especially in the UW system and on campus for people who will help you, whether that's, you know, staff, other students, but there's also like the financial aid departments in there and stuff like that. But it takes that first step of being comfortable enough to go and have those discussions and ask, why is this not working? Why am I not eligible for this? How do I do this? Um, and you also have to have the time to do that. And add the factor in that if you started at a two-year campus and had a really great small community, you felt really comfortable. Now you're not a freshman. You don't get freshman orientation. You don't get all this other stuff. And you're on a bigger campus. Now you have to go and find out all these other resources, make all these other connections. And it can be really daunting and really scary. Uh, but there are the resources there to help you. You just got to get to them. That's a great point, though, Alyssa, about the, the transfer experience that people maybe don't think about or talk about enough is how daunting it is midway through college when you don't have all the freshman kind of supports. We have time to take a call. We have a caller, um, Fawn, on the line with a question. Uh, Fawn, you are on the air on a public affair. Yes, great, thanks. I have a, um, a question and some comments. One question is I've been hearing um, or noticing online that some people who are more conservative 
and they may be coming from working class background or they did not go to college and they feel resentful. They say, why should we um, subsidize the education of these? And of course, they make it out to sound like these um, like kids who these um, really frivolous kids who spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a college education so they can in, you know, like ancient Greek mythology so that they can, you know, drive a cab and then whine about their debt that, you know, they make, you know, they paint some fat, you know, extreme picture like that. And they say, because we maybe were, you know, bricklayers or truck drivers or, you know, hotel workers or, you know, landscape, why should we put the bill for that? And so there's that question. I wonder how you'd respond to that. You mentioned something about the overall economy improving where people have more money in their pockets to spend. Maybe they can spend it on those goods or services that, for which these other people, non-college educated people, are benefiting when people do spend. Perhaps that's an answer. But it's kind of more macro, um, macroeconomics, I guess, and maybe less pal- directly pal- you know, palpable for those people. Another qu- um, comment I have is that I think the system, as you mentioned, the system needs to be desperately needs to be reformed. That so that the for instance, if a cap were put on interest rates on all educational loans, like a very very low cap, like one or two or three percent max, then that would make it easier for people, even if they are taking out. I mean, it doesn't help if they're taking out huge amounts, but it would help a lot um, because the t- amount of time it takes to pay it back during that time, the interest rate just skyrockets. Uh, the interest builds, and that's becoming pro- prohibitive to you know to repay also, and that the the um, federal programs, which have been whittled back, should be made more robust again, and more money should be made, made available. That's what I, one of my comments. A lot there. Thank you, Fawn, so much for your thoughtful questions and comments. Um, a lot there to dig into that we only have a minute or two for, but um, Nick, I'll turn it back to you to, to say anything that, that prompts you uh, to think about. Two quick things. Um, about two-thirds of federal student loan borrowers also had a Pell Grant. And so that could be one of the responses, Vaughn, um, when you hear that conversation about um, students who borrow uh, and sort of, I don't know, the critiques of that, most oftentimes they're coming from lower income families. So that's on one hand of the equation. The other side is on um, the White House estimates that about 80% of people will qualify for the forgiveness uh, and they have I'm, I'm not saying this quite right, less than $75,000 income. So I guess the majority, what I'm trying to say is the majority of forgiveness is going to be targeted to families with or individuals with less than $75,000 income. And that puts you right over the median nationally, maybe in the top sort of uh, 70, I don't know, 60% of earnings. So it's not like super high income. So those are two things. And the 0% interest rate is something very promising that other countries have done that I do see could be something in our future here in the U.S. Great to have a couple of concrete possibilities for the future to end on there. Thank you so much. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Nick Hillman, Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis at UW-Madison. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today, Nick. Thank you. We've also been talking about with recent University of Wisconsin Oshkosh graduates, Alyssa Reinke and Corey Zeman. Thank you for joining us, Alyssa. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on. And thank you for being with us, Corey. It was great to talk to you guys. Thanks for having me. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer, Rochelle, and news director, Shali, for your help as well. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT Madison. Have a great Labor Day. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat up next. George Dreckman will be talking with Mary Louise Roberts about her new book, Sheer Misery, Soldiers in Battle in World War II. It's the same recorded message you've been singing all along. Keep handing us the Bible while you're walking off with all the gold. The bureaucratic office sends you merry-go-rounding. By the KKK, police the streets by bloodhounding. Interest on the credit card just keeps on compounding. But the FCC can never...